Well, good morning, everyone. I'll um, add my welcome to Shaka's. My name is Bill Hearman. I'm one of the elders here. And this morning, we are going to be continuing our summer series of tracing the story of the Exodus throughout the Bible, and especially in the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 81 this morning. If you've uh, got that, you can turn there now. And if you need a Bible, we've got several laid out for you uh, in the aisles. Feel free to flag somebody down. You know, all of us have stories that make us who we are, don't we? We have memories, things that have happened to us that shape the way we look at the world, that shape the way we think about other people or um, our jobs or our relationships. And some of those stories are good stories, happy memories. But some of those stories are hard memories, hard things that have happened to us that shape us. And, you know, God's people are no different. God's people have stories told all throughout the Bible, things that actually happened to them that shape the way we understand who God is and how we relate to him. And the story of the Exodus is one of the most important stories of God's people in the whole Bible. It's something we've been studying in depth for the last six months here at Trinity. And it's a story about God rescuing his people from slavery, about him hearing their cries and intervening in history with miraculous works. He parted the Red Sea. His people walked across on dry land into the wilderness where they met with God on the mountain. God himself came down and established a relationship with them where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He fed them with bread from heaven. He led them through the wilderness in pillars of smoke and fire and he brought them into the promised land. But it's also a story of Israel's failures. It's also a story of Israel not living up to the calling that God had for them in their lives. And that's the backdrop of the psalm that we're going to study today, Israel's failures in the wilderness. Israel had some hard lessons to learn. The psalm today tells us that one of those lessons was to seek satisfaction in God and God alone. And so that's the theme of what we're going to consider today. We as Christians should seek satisfaction in God and God alone. It's a theme that's all throughout the Bible, actually. The picture of being satisfied in God most often is described as eating at a feast with God, an extravagant feast where no one is hungry and everyone is satisfied. We actually read from Isaiah chapter 25 a minute ago. I'll I'll just read it again for us. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Being satisfied in God is like being at a table with him of abundance. It's also a theme that Jesus takes up in his ministry. You know, famously, he performs a miracle feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And after that, in John chapter 6, he says to his followers, I am the bread of life. Come to me and you'll never be hungry. Come to me and you'll never be thirsty. And so I think one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, are we a fundamentally satisfied people in the Lord? Because this is a challenging thing. Friends, we are surrounded by inherently dissatisfying circumstances. Aren't we? I mean, we are so often overwhelmed by the pain of this world, of seeing things the way they shouldn't be, 
We are so often overwhelmed by our own sin and sadness and sorrow. And that is a tension that we have to live with. But it doesn't mean that we can't be satisfied in the Lord. And so that's the question that we're going to consider this morning, really, is how do we, as a people of God, seek satisfaction in the Lord, even amidst and especially when we are in inherently dissatisfying circumstances? To do that, we're going to look at the idea of satisfaction and address this psalm in three steps. The first one is we're going to listen to God's message to us, to consider what he has to say about being satisfied in him and him alone. And then we're going to look carefully at a warning that God gives his people, not to repeat the failures of Israel in the wilderness. And we're going to look at his warning not to wander and not to forget. Hopefully in that section we'll really unpack some um, really practical ways to cultivate our own experience of satisfaction in the Lord. And then finally, we're going to look at a promise that God gives, that we'll have satisfaction in him forever. So we have three steps, God's message, his warning, and his promise, as we consider what it means to be satisfied in the Lord together. So if you have found uh, Psalm 81, would you stand in honor of God's word uh, while I read for us? Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called. And I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with the honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is God's words for us this morning. You may be seated. Okay, God's message to his people is to be satisfied in him and him alone. And the heart of that message comes through in verse 10. So in order to get there, what I'd like to do is start to walk you through a little bit of the context of these first few verses, and we'll return to them a little bit later. So you might have noticed that this song, psalm starts out as a celebration song. Remember that the Psalms are the hymn book of Israel, and this one was meant to be used at a couple of their feasts that they celebrated every year to remember what happened in the Exodus. And it literally starts out with a blowing of the trumpet. 
a great victory celebration, almost like a, a ticker tape parade maybe after a war or after World War II. You have those images of just incredible celebration. I think that's what's happening here. And you can see what they're celebrating. They're celebrating, verse 5, when the Lord went out over the land of Egypt, when he, in verse 6, relieved their shoulder of the burden. And in verse 7, when he delivered them after hearing their distress. This is a celebration of what God did in the story of the Exodus. But like I mentioned at the beginning, it's also a remembrance of Israel's failures. And so while this song starts out in a major key, I think it actually changes keys here to more of a minor key, to more of a sad song. You can see in verse 7, it mentions two specific things that happened in the wilderness. I answered you in the secret place of thunder, and I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now that first reference is to when God met his people on the mountain, and he came down to establish his relationship. And that is an amazing and incredible thing that happened. But no sooner had Moses gone up the mountain than his people had turned to worship a golden calf. And the same thing in Meribah. Meribah is a place in the desert that Israel actually came to twice in their wilderness journey. It was a time, both times, when they were thirsty. And rightly so. They were in the desert and had nothing to drink. And in that moment, they questioned their God. They turned on him, and they grumbled against him. And they said, why did God bring us out of the land of Egypt to die? Weren't there graves enough in Egypt for us? And it's in the context of those failures that God speaks to his people. You can actually hear God speaking directly to his people in verse 8. It says, Here, O my people, while I admonish you, while I correct you. You see him pleading with his people. Oh, Israel, if you would but listen to me. And then he, he tells us something we've heard before something we heard at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. He said, There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then God says something to his people that I think is the very heart and soul of how we can come to be satisfied in the Lord. He says, Open your mouth wide, and I will feed it. I will fill it. It's an image of being fed by God like a baby bird to its mother or an infant to its mother, coming in total dependence and satisfaction in the Lord. And you can see, if you skip down to verse 16, what the Lord intends to feed his people. He intends to feed them the finest of wheat and honey from the rock. He would satisfy us. God is pleading with his people to come to him and to be satisfied in him and him alone. Now, it, it probably is worth stopping here to say what I mean by being satisfied in the Lord. Because it's much more than a satisfying of our physical hunger. Being satisfied in the Lord means the kind of deep, inner, emotional, and spiritual satisfaction that we also desperately long for. In preparation for this sermon, I was reading a really helpful book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. It's a Puritan pastor. It's one of the most helpful books um, on the notion of being satisfied in the Lord that I've ever read, so I'll, I'll recommend it to you. But he gives an excellent definition of what it means to be satisfied in the Lord. He says that being satisfied in God is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit 
that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly plan in every condition. Being satisfied in God is a sweet, inward condition of your heart. It's a frame of spirit that is gracious and that freely submits to and even delights in God's plan for your life in every condition. That's the kind of satisfaction that's being pictured here that God is pleading with his people to come to him for. I think it bears mentioning right here that the kind of satisfaction we're talking about isn't a happy-go-lucky external happiness that smooths over the sadness in our lives. No, we are meant to grieve the sadness in this world. We are meant to hate sin and sorrow and suffering. We can look to Jesus as our example there. He saw the sin of the world and he came to die for it. He wept over death. He hated the sorrow of this world, yet he was satisfied in his Father in heaven. So when we talk about being satisfied in the Lord, we don't mean we don't grieve the sadness. We don't mean we don't hate the sorrow. We mean we find a deep, inward, heart satisfaction in the Lord, even amidst those circumstances. That's what God is calling his people to here. And we can see that God tells us that his people didn't do that in the wilderness. If you take a look at verse 12, excuse me, verse 11, it says, My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. God's people rejected him. And rather than being a bird who is totally dependent on its mother for food, Israel was like a toddler being fed by its parents, sitting there with its mouth closed refusing to eat anything that the parent has, spitting it out. Not knowing that the vegetables that you have in that little spoon are meant for that child's good, that will help them feel better because they won't be hungry and it'll help them grow strong and it'll help them develop. But God's people wouldn't take his food. They sat there defiantly, closing their mouth, refusing to open it. And not only that, not only did they reject what God had for them, they replaced it. They replaced it with their own ways. Look in verse 11, and and here you may uh, be hearing echoes of Romans chapter 1, where where God gives his people over to their own stubborn hearts. I think we see ourselves in this. Verse 11 says, My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn hearts to follow their own Councils. Not only did God's people reject him, they sought after their own ways, their own counsels. And friends, I think this right here is where we need to find ourselves in this message. Because we so often seek after things to satisfy us that aren't the Lord. Don't we? I came up with a little, you know, a few handful of things, but you can probably fill in a blank for you. I think we can seek after things like career, successful careers. We can seek after things like approval from other people, maybe even our parents or our spouses. We can seek after money. We can seek after our body image or our appearance, our physical appearance. We can seek after material possessions or sexual fulfillment. 
or family or having our children be successful. There are so many things that we think we have to have in order to be happy. And the thing about these things is that they're almost always good things, aren't they? The things that we seek after are often gifts from God. But where we deceive ourselves is that those things can ultimately lead to the inward frame, the inward satisfaction in our hearts that only God can provide. Here again, I'm going to borrow from Jeremiah Burroughs, who really helped me think through this. He says that chasing after things in this world that are not God is like trying to satisfy your hunger with the wind. We often think that we are hungry because we don't have enough of the thing that we desire. And that's like us trying to satisfy our hunger by opening our mouths to eat the wind. And when we think we're dissatisfied, we open our mouths wider thinking that, oh, I just need more of this wind and that will make me full. But the thing that you have to realize is that those things that you're seeking after have no hope of satisfying you. It's in their very nature. They just can't do it. And so getting more of it will not lead to your satisfaction in the Lord. The only thing that can satisfy you, the only thing that can satisfy you is to turn to the Lord your God and open your mouth wide to be fed by him. And I think, friends, we need help with this. Because sometimes... Sometimes, this is obvious to us. And when it is, we can be thankful for that, that we can fight it. We can pray against it. We can seek to not be satisfied in those things. But this is an area where I think we so often have spiritual blind spots. We just can't see that we're looking for satisfaction in other things. That happens to us when we eat food, too. You know, we get hungry, and sometimes we have an emotional response that sort of pops out sideways, don't we? We get angry or frustrated or irritable or tired. And really what we need to do is eat some food. We've got a word for it. It's called being hangry. And I think we have a tendency to be spiritually hangry. To have emotional responses that actually are the product of us seeking satisfaction in something other than the Lord. And we need to train ourselves to recognize it when that's happening. So I'd love to just give you a few examples, a few things that I think might be a symptom of you seeking satisfaction in the Lord. I don't know your heart. I don't think that this is a one-to-one correlation, but I do think it's common. And so if you're struggling with these things, it may be that you need to take a moment and reflect, am I looking for satisfaction in something other than the Lord? I think it's emotions like disappointment. If you're regularly disappointed in people or circumstances around you, it may be that you're forgetting that God could never disappoint you. It may be emotions like entitlement, feeling like you deserve something better than you have, or resentment, being angry because you didn't get that thing that you deserve. It may be that you have a complaining spirit, or a spirit that loves being recognized by other people as being in the know, as being important. Maybe that looks like gossip for you. Friends, I think that these are the kinds of emotions that tell us we're looking for something to satisfy us that isn't God. And if you're struggling with them, you can turn and have a moment of introspection to consider what am I pursuing if not God? And how can I turn to pursue him and him alone? Now, the other thing that I I just want to say here 
is I recognize that preaching a sermon about being satisfied in God alone may be very hard for some of you to hear. Because it's very possible that you have tried this before and felt like you have come up empty. Especially if you are in a difficult season of your life. Especially if you are in a desert, a wilderness, and you are wondering if God is really there then the idea of coming to God to be satisfied may be really trite or simplistic and you think empty because you've tried it before. And maybe you've come to God and felt betrayed by him or let down by him. Or maybe you've come to God and felt abandoned by him or like he isn't good. And if that's something you're struggling with this morning, then We'll talk in a few minutes about some practical ways to cultivate an experience of satisfaction in the Lord. But if you're struggling with this notion that God isn't good, I think the thing that we need to see from this psalm is that that's just not true. He's telling his people, Israel, who were struggling with the same idea. They they thought God wasn't good. They thought God had abandoned them. And he's saying, that's not what happened. I am for you. Please listen to me and follow me. And so if you're struggling with the notion that God isn't good, I think the first thing you just have to know is that the Bible tells you that that's not true, and you just need to call it what it is. It's just a lie about who God is. And I think what's happened is that your taste buds have been damaged. I think what has happened is that when you come to God, you taste spoiled food, not the delicious satisfaction that he has. And so my prayer for you, if this is something you're struggling with, comes from Psalm 34. This is a prayer that you can pray if this is something you're dealing with. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then the last thing, before we move on to the next point, that I just want to highlight, and I think this is especially important if you are in one of those seasons of pain or suffering, is to look at God's attitude, his posture towards us in this correction that he's giving us, in this warning. He is pleading with his people. He is coming to them in mercy and grace and earnestly hoping that they will turn back to him. He says, Oh, Israel, if you would but listen to me, please come back to me. And that way, this psalm actually reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. It's a story that Jesus tells during his ministry, a story of a son who turns his back on his father, doesn't listen to him, goes his own way, rejects his father like Israel did. He goes and he squanders his inheritance and he finds himself eating food in a pigsty. And he says, well, maybe I should go back to my father's house because even the slaves eat better than I'm eating right now. And so he goes back hoping that his father will at least grant him a position in the slavery in his house. And what does his father do? He sees him and he runs to him and he hugs him and he puts a robe on him and he puts a ring on his finger and he celebrates a feast with him. Friends, God is waiting for us 
to turn to him, to reject all of the other things that we seek satisfaction in, and to be fed in him and him alone. He desperately wants that for us. And that is his message to his people this morning. Be satisfied in me and satisfied in me alone. Now, the second part of what we're going to consider today is actually God's warning to his people not to repeat what happened in Israel, in the wilderness. Hebrews, uh, the letter of Hebrews uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 make it really clear that Christians are also susceptible to repeating what happened in the wilderness and that we need to be careful not to fall into those same traps. And so I think we can look at the teaching of this psalm and apply it to our lives to be careful not to repeat what Israel did when they were faced with the trouble of the wilderness. And I think um, there are two connections that I want to make for you. The first is the connection between obedience and satisfaction in the Lord. And the second is the connection between remembering God's faithfulness and being satisfied in the Lord. Now, I want to say quickly here that there are more than two ways to seek satisfaction in the Lord. In fact, this very nice book is all about that. So, I'm only going to talk about the two things that I think are most important from this psalm today. But this is, if this is something you're struggling with, then I would encourage you to seek out this book, read it, because it's got chapter after chapter after chapter about how to cultivate an experience of satisfaction in the Lord. But for us today, there are two really clear connections. The first is between obedience and satisfaction. And you can see here that God is saying to his people, don't Walk away from me. Don't walk in your own ways. Walk in my ways. Submit to me. And the reason, the reason that obedience is tied to satisfaction in the Lord is that God puts out laws for us that are meant for our good. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I command you this day, for your good. I think sometimes we look at the laws in the Bible, the ways that God calls us to live, and we think they're a set of repressive restrictions that are meant to keep us from experiencing our fullness of who we could be. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. God made us. He knows us. He created us. He knew you from before you were born. And he puts out rules, laws, commandments, ways of living in the Bible because he knows what's best for us. And we can seek to be satisfied in him when we follow his ways. Now, when we talk about obedience, people get kind of nervous sometimes. And I think there's at least three ways that you can be thinking about obedience. The first is the eye roll. The person who thinks, the the Bible is just a set of antiquated things. I'm fine. I don't need to hear about obedience. The second is people who are really theologically minded, who are really hoping that I don't say something that sounds even a little bit like works-based righteousness. Have no fear. The third is the rule follower, who gets really excited when we talk about obedience because you're like, you sit up in your seat, okay, finally, something I can hang my hat on, right? And I think we have to be careful here 
because people have talked about obedience in ways that are really damaging. And so we do need to be cautious when we think about it. And the thing that we need to be most careful of when we draw connections between obedience and satisfaction is sort of the prosperity gospel. The notion that there's a transactional equation here, that if I just follow three more of God's laws, then my satisfaction will go up by 3% or 5%. It doesn't work that way. It's not transactional, right? We want to be quick to say that there is nothing you can do to make God love you more than he already does. He already sent his son to die for you. He cannot love you more than he does. So being obedient to him does not earn favor in his eyes. It does not make you right before him. But it does honor him. Following God's ways does please him. He finds pleasure when we do what he tells us to, when we submit to him. And not only that, it's for our good. And so when we think about satisfaction in the Lord, we don't want to have a transactional notion of obedience. But what we do want to say is that if you are actively rejecting the ways of the Lord in your life, actively rejecting his commandment in your life, then there's no possible way that you will ever be satisfied in him. Because he knows what's best for you. And so if you are struggling with the experience of deep inner satisfaction in your soul, I think it's a real question that you should consider. Are there areas in my life that I'm not submitting to what God has called me to? I don't know that it is. But I think you need to ask that question real seriously. And you need to involve people in your life to to help you with that. Because it's very hard to see sometimes ways that we're not honoring God in the way that we're living. That's the first connection. Obedience and satisfaction. If you don't follow the ways of the Lord, you'll never be satisfied in him because he knows what's best for us. His laws are for our good. The second connection that I want us to see is between remembering God's faithfulness, not forgetting his faithfulness. And Matt Givens preached a whole sermon on this last week, but I think there's a really important connection that we see here in verse 7 when he talks about the secret, testing the people at the waters of Meribah. Remember that the first time they were there, Israel had literally just walked across the Red Sea. I mean, they had walked on the bottom of the ocean with the water on the sides of them to flee an army that was surely going to kill them. Not to mention being rescued out of 400 years of slavery. So they get into the wilderness, and a few days in, they're thirsty. And they turn on their God, and they say, is God really with us? What did he bring us out here for, to die? Weren't there graves in in Egypt? And part of me looks at that and says, well, what what were you guys thinking? I mean, were you not there like a week ago when he parted the Red Sea? But I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake not to see ourselves in the story of Meribah. Because honestly, how long does it take you to be walking in the wilderness with your child on your back, who is literally dying of thirst, to start to wonder if God maybe hasn't abandoned you? You don't have any water for him. You don't know what to do. And you start to wonder, maybe if I were in charge, I would have done it a little differently. You start to think, maybe I know better than God. And I, th- I think you need to, we need to ask ourselves, what are our Meribah moments? What are the things in our life where we think, God really didn't get that one right? God isn't good there. Did he abandon his people? We need to see ourselves in that because here, in this psalm, God makes it very clear 
that no matter how common that attitude is, no matter how easy it is for all of us to fall into that kind of questioning, that line of thinking is rebellion against God. That line of thinking is a rejection of God. It's sinful, and we need to repent of it the moment that we start to feel that way. I think the fundamental failure of the people at Meribah was that they forgot who their God was, that he was a faithful and loving God. And so the connection between being satisfied in the Lord when we are in the midst of our desert is to remember who our God is. And I think we should be really practical here. I mean, this week, take a few moments. Write it down. God was faithful to me this year when he fill in the blank. Think about the last five years or the last ten years. Be really practical. Ask your friends to help you. What we need are tour guides to God's faithfulness in our lives. We need people to help us remember that God hasn't abandoned us so that when we are in those desert moments, we can look back and say, this is who my God is. He would never leave me. He is good. And, you know, I think as Christians, we can look back on the cross of Christ in this way. Because God has already given us his son. We cannot be in the habit of asking God, what have you done for me lately? He already sent his son to die for you. God made you. He created you. He knew you from before you were born, and he made you to be in a relationship with him. Maybe you need to remember that this week, that God is big and powerful and designed to be in relationship with you. Maybe you need to remember that you're nothing without him. Maybe you need to remember that you can bring nothing to the table. Maybe you need to remember that because of your sin, you deserve God's wrath. Maybe you need to remember that God doesn't need you to be satisfied. He's been satisfied in himself, loving all three parts, all three persons of his trinity forever. He doesn't need us to be satisfied. Maybe you need to remember that Jesus came to live a perfect life, to pay the penalty for your sin. And in so doing, to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. So that when he rose from the dead, he could prove victory over death, that we might be in relationship with God forever. Satisfied in him, where all of the things that are sad and painful in this life will be no more. Being again in relationship with him, that is what we are called to remember. If we want to cultivate lives that are full of a deep, inward satisfaction in the Lord, what we need to do is set our minds and our hearts on Jesus, recognizing that that, in that moment, when it really happened, was the singular, defining act of love that would characterize God for all of history. He has already given you his son. What more could he possibly withhold from you? We have to remember. As we turn then to the final point, 
we recognize that in this psalm, we see the very clear teaching of Scripture. That we are called to be satisfied now in this life as a deep, inward, gracious frame of spirit that delights in God's plan for us, and that is especially true when we are in our desert moments. But friends, we are not yet experiencing the fullness of that promise in the way that we one day will be. And so we see in verse 15 and 16 a promise. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with the honey from the rock I would satisfy you. We see in this first part, verse 15, a hard promise. One that says, if you turn away from the Lord, your fate will be your own. Your fate will be to be separated from God. He will give you over to your own ways. You will be separated from him forever. But we also see in verse 16 a promise of incredible satisfaction in the Lord forever. Just look at this language. It says, with the honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Do you notice the comparison between what God did at Meribah and what he's promising here? At Meribah, he quenched their thirst with water from the rock. Here we see sort of a leveling up, the next level of satisfaction. I'm going to give you honey from the rock. And for Israel, this was a literal promise. This, this was, if you follow my ways, I will take you to the promised land and I will satisfy you right now in this place, in this time. But for us, I think we can see in this sort of extravagant picture of satisfaction, the future satisfaction that's promised to us in heaven with God, where all of the sad things in this world will be untrue. We can see the deep heart satisfaction that will come from being with our God. And friends, I think that that covers over a multitude of sufferings in this world. It's something that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. It's something that Paul calls the eternal weight of glory. That the sufferings of this time just pale in comparison to the glory that will be ours in heaven. And so if we come to these passages and we seek the satisfaction that's ours and we recognize that it takes work for us, we recognize that we aren't yet experiencing in its fullest way, we can look forward We can look forward to a time when death will no longer be the end of the story. When we can come and be satisfied in our Lord. So the last thing then that I want to say as we close our time together is what do you need to get this satisfaction in the Lord? What do you have to bring for God to fulfill this promise to you? And the answer is you have to bring your brokenness. The only thing that God requires of us is that we would feel our need for him. So having it together is not required to be satisfied by the Lord. In fact, far from it. We need to know that we are spiritually bankrupt people, that we are not perfect, that we are sinful, and that no matter what you have done, no matter what you have done, if you come to God with a repentant heart, He will satisfy your soul. I'm going to close with 
a passage from Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning with nothing in our hands. We have no money to buy. We have no worth that you would look upon us with favor. And we come knowing that we seek satisfaction in things that aren't you. Father, help us not to repeat the failures of Israel in the wilderness. Father, I pray that you would help us to turn and run to you. Turn and run to you to be fed by you that we would be satisfied now and satisfied forever. Oh, Father, feed us with honey from the rock, we pray. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen.